Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, the Lenau brothers in 17th century Paris. But before we get there, I want to say thanks to a longtime friend of the program who is retiring this week. As you can surely imagine, putting together a program such as this each week is a lot of work, and we couldn't do it without help from not just artists and curators and historians, but also museum and publisher communication staffs, studio assistants, audio technicians, and librarians. I can't think of anyone who's helped the program more than Anna Brooke, who's been the librarian at Washington's Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden for as long as anyone here can remember. Brooke retired this week, leaving in place a top-notch modern and contemporary art library, one of Washington's best resources for anyone needing to research anything touching on art of the last hundred or so years. As with pretty much all of Washington's great institutional libraries, the Hirshhorns is free and open to the public, but uncommonly accessible and thorough resource the rare place in Washington where cultural knowledge is both accumulated and valued. For many years during a previous directorial administration, I was something of a persona non grata at the Hirshhorn. But Brooke made sure that the museum's library remained not just open to me, but did everything she could to make whatever work I had to do there both productive and comfortable. Enjoy retirement, Anna. Now on to the Lenau. The Kimball Art Museum is showing the Brothers Lenau, painters of 17th century France through September 11th, which point the show will travel to the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco. Little is known about the lives of the three Lenau brothers, Antoine, Louis, and Mathieu, who were active in Paris during the 1630s and 40s. Attribution of their paintings, which were signed simply Lenau, regardless of whether any given painting was the product of one, two, or three hands, has been a hot topic among scholars for decades. Their work includes religious paintings, portraits, and genre scenes. They are best known for their depiction of peasants and the poor, paintings that led to the Lenau being rediscovered by 19th century French realists. The Kimball Fine Arts Museum's show is the first major American exhibition devoted to the Lenau. It was preceded only by a much smaller exhibition at the Toledo Museum of Art in 1947. The only other previous Lenau exhibition anywhere was in Paris in 1978. The Kimball Show is accompanied by an outstanding 454-page catalog that was published by the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco and is distributed by Yale University Press. My first guest is C.D. Dickerson III, who began work on the show while at the Kimball and who is now the curator and head of sculpture and decorative arts at the National Gallery of Art. He co-curated the show with Esther Bell, the curator in charge of European paintings at the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco. Her work is included in Disguise, Masks, and Global African Art at the Brooklyn Museum. It's up through September 18th. And remember how a moment ago I said it takes a village to produce this podcast? Special thanks this week to Annabeth Guthrie and John Conway at the National Gallery of Art. C.D. Dickerson, after the break. Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2016, a, the, though, only, the third biennial of artists working throughout Los Angeles. Organized by Hammer curator Aram Moshayeti and the Renaissance Society's Hamza Walker, Made in L.A. 2016 features the work of 26 artists. Occupying the entire Hammer Museum, the exhibition includes condensed monographic surveys, comprehensive displays of multi-year projects, the premiere of new bodies of work and newly commissioned works from emerging artists. Find details at hammer.ucla.edu. Made in LA 2016, a, the, though, only. On view June 12th through August 28th at the Hammer Museum. Blaffer Art Museum presents the first major U.S. museum exhibition for Matthew Ronet, June 4th through October 1st. Although Ronet has a form of colorblindness, his handcrafted sculptures, installations, and reliefs combine vivid hues from across the spectrum that seem to vibrate and hum. From June 4th through September 10th, Hilary Lloyd presents video installations, objects, and architectural interventions created specifically for Blaffer's galleries. More at blafferartmuseum.org. On the edge of the Gobi Desert, the Mogao cave temples dating from the 4th century are filled with exquisite wall paintings and sculpture that bore witness to the cultural exchanges along the Silk Road. On view now at the Getty, Cave Temples of Dunhuang provides the rare opportunity to explore full-scale, hand-painted replica caves. View paintings on silk, embroidered fabrics, and rare manuscripts, including the Diamond Sutra, the world's oldest printed book, and step into a virtual, immersive experience of an 8th century cave. 
Visit getty.edu to learn more. And we're back. C.D. Dickerson, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much, Tyler. Pleasure to be here. Obvious first question, how many brothers were there? And do we know or does it matter which of them painted what? There are three brothers, Antoine, Louis, and Mathieu. Antoine and Louis, based on when their parents were married, probably were born about 1598, 1602, respectively. We know that the youngest brother, Mathieu, was born in 1608. The two oldest brothers, Antoine and Louis, they died in back-to-back days in 1648. Obviously, they caught the same disease, illness, whatever. The youngest brother, Mathieu, would go on and live almost another 30 years, dying in 1677. So you've got three brothers, a bunch of paintings, and obviously the question of which brother executed which of these paintings. It does matter. It's interesting to think about having three brothers who are trying to, they live together. And there's one contemporary report that says they lived in absolute harmony, worked in absolute harmony. So they were sharing, obviously, production. They had to have been collaborating, especially when it comes to large altarpieces. But the fact of the matter is, is that many of the paintings that we are so celebrated are much smaller in scale and seem to betray distinctive hands. So trying to associate which brother did which of these paintings um, is a challenge. It's a connoisseurial challenge, and we resorted to the old-fashioned science of connoisseurship really to try to untangle this problem. There, there are two related problems. One is that we have no documents for any of the brothers that assigns a specific painting, surviving painting, to any one of the named brothers. And um, none of them signed a painting or dated a painting ever. They were signed and dated, but when they're signed and dated, it's only the surname. Right. Um, so it's an interesting question about what they were intending to do and what constituted the Lenan brand, if there was an obvious intent to obfuscate their identity for the purpose of having a collective Lenan identity. And we can go into that later when it comes even to some of their proposed self-portraits. Matthew, as you mentioned, lived for 29 years after the other two brothers. We'll come back to that gap at the end of the show. Let's kind of get into their world in the early 17th century a bit. Where in France do they grow up and probably get started, and why might that be important in the work? Yeah, no, it's fascinating. They're born in a little town called Laon. It's a totally picturesque town of about 25,000 inhabitants, located about a two-hour's drive northeast of Paris. It sits up on sort of a plateau. It's got a stunning 12th century cathedral with beautiful sculpted oxen that decorate the, the facade towers. It's, it's surrounded by agricultural regions, some rolling hills. Vineyards were in prominence in this area. We know that their family had a small farm. The father begins to buy parcels of land at a certain point during his life. He buys a somewhat larger farm later on in his life when maybe the brothers are in their teenage years. It's an interesting time, the the great art historian, uh, our former director of the British Museum, Neil McGregor, wrote a fascinating article in 1979 where he was talking about how there was a real change in the economics of the peasant world at this point in time, where middle-class landowners like Isaac Lenan, the father of the Lenan, were able to begin to buy the lands and to then hire displaced peasants to work them. And um, this seems to have been very much what the father of the Lenan, in fact, was doing, which gives the brothers, at a very early age, direct exposure to the kind of agricultural world um, that they would become prominent painting later in their life. But the question that we can come back to is whether or not the brothers really needed their experience in Laon to be able to create the kinds of imagery that they ended up doing much later in Paris. We know nothing about how they trained. There's one source from about 1715 um, written by someone who would have known the family members that says that they were instructed in the rudiments of painting by a foreign painter. Um, Laon's quite near the Flemish border. About and halfway between Paris and Brussels. Yeah, exactly. So there are you know, any number of Flemish painters going back and forth. Philippe de Champagne, somebody may have stopped. And I, I, I don't necessarily know if it was a matter of teaching them, but maybe it was somebody just recognizing that they had just enough talent maybe that um, they should try to make a move to Paris and, and make a real go for it. What's fascinating when it comes to the world of the Lenan and their social world it's quite clear that they were, you know, they had connections back to Paris. Isaac Lenan was kind of a minor royal official. He was in charge of the salt tax in, in Laon, and that was part of the salt tax. The French king controlled salt. It was the only, I guess, commodity in the country he controlled. Therefore, this 
person was a yeah he was he was you know uh, yeah of, of some importance you know we have occasional visits by the king and his court this is Louis the 13th and Queen Anne of Austria coming to Laos so maybe the the brother's father was in attendance at dinners and ceremonies there were a couple of minor painters that are documented in Laos but it seems quite clearly that, that somehow they began to paint and had the idea of going to Paris probably 1626 27 they're first documented in 1629 when the oldest brother, Antoine, matriculates into the Painters Guild of the Faubourg Saint-Germain-des-Prés. You, you, you briefly mentioned there that the Lenans had some connection to French noblemen, both in Paris and Laon and, and Queen Anne of Austria. And one of the interesting things about your essay is you, over the course of 264 footnotes and 36 pages weave together a, a quite plausible web of how it all fit together. Is there a short version of how three guys from an agricultural backwater somehow managed to climb through a moneyed aristocracy and royal courts in a way that seems like it shouldn't have been accessible to them? Yeah, no, this is one of the great mysteries of, of, uh, of the Lena. Clearly, they came to the capital with, with some sort of entrees, introductions. Anne of Austria is a signer on their matriculation papers into the guild, which, uh, according to my study, is, is totally unique. I haven't found another example mm. of that, of her sort of sponsoring these people to be in the Faubourg Saint-Germain. This mm. was neighborhood of Paris that sat outside of the authority of the official guild of Paris. So it tended to be where foreigners would try to uh, matriculate into the, the world of painting. Um, there was a lot of Flemings in this particular neighborhood. But somehow they arrived. Somehow, I guess if they had talent, they, they were able then to begin to appeal through one connection at a time to rise. And I think it's only, they, they must have built their reputation really through the skill. And, and quite quickly, it seems, based on the way that we're able to assemble their chronology of their paintings, uh, you know, within one or two years after having done a series of altarpieces that are quite traditional in style. They leap forward ahead stylistically to being really one of the most progressive and imaginative groups of painters active in the Parisian capital in the 1630s. I mean, one example is the uh, way in which they seem to be attracted to the painter Orazio Gentileschi, who's the great follower of Caravaggio. He came to Paris before the Lenan, probably even came to Paris themselves. He was only there for a year and a half. He left behind paintings, were able to document other paintings by him, having come into Paris during the early 1630s. But he really would have represented one of the most progressive, forward-looking types of naturalism um, that would have been before the Lenan's eyes. And they seem to, to, to grasp that almost immediately when these sources begin to appear. No other painters are, are doing the same thing. Um, so by virtue of that, if you're good and you're being commissioned to do great altarpieces in Paris, for example, I think the, the great aristocrats pay notice and slowly they're able to um, expand their clientele roster. So they get their first start through altarpieces? Or um, do we just not know if they were doing portraits at that point? The earliest document for a portrait, I believe, is 1633. So a little bit later. Right. So we know they did a series of altarpieces between 1629 and 1632. That was for the Spanish ambassador to Paris, who was a close uh, friend of Queen Anne of Austria. So that kind of begins to fit together. Then there, Antoine is hired to execute the great group portrait of the Echevin and Alderman, uh, the, the top municipal officials of Paris, um, which was uh, a totally prestigious commission at that point in time, all the all the great artists, and it tended actually to be foreigners, were hired to do this type of um, group portrait on a regular annual basis. You mentioned Orazio Genileschi. Is there a good example or two of the, the, that might demonstrate where the Linnaeus seeing Genileschi maybe migrate something or borrow something and bring it into their work? Uh, you know, there's a good painting in Vienna by Orazio Gentileschi of the rest on the flight from Egypt um, that we know would have been in Paris at that time, uh, if not that exact painting, certainly mm-hmm. uh, a copy by uh, Orazio, and he, was, he, he produced many versions and replicas of his paintings. And I think if you compare that with the great altarpiece that the Lenan must have executed about 1638 uh, for Notre Dame Cathedral, it's now in the Church of Saint-Pierre in Nevers, in the center of France. There you see, if you look um, closely, especially at the Virgin's head, you see a kind of everyday woman, a kind of naturalism infiltrate their style in the altarpiece in Nevers that's very, very similar to what you see in the Orazio Gentileschi. 
and it's not so much naturalism as well. Orazio had a kind of poeticism with his art in being able to create compositions that are beautifully balanced in terms of the form and also playing very, very nicely with colors and having bright shots of colors. And you can see, for instance, in the Lenan's art, wherever you have a nice bright blue, you have a nice red balancing it. And I think the Lenan are, are playing with that kind of formal similarities. On the cover of the catalog is a beautiful painting of the Bacchus and Ariadne by the Lenan. Again, that stunning sort of beautiful figure of uh, Ariadne asleep excellent example, I think, of the influence of Orazio's art. And then when you look at the way that the colors are played out um, across that canvas, especially with the oarsmen in the background, it's a similar style of Gentileschian naturalism and poeticism. Painters from northeast France, Matisse included, always had to leave and get into Paris before they learned what to do with color, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, you note in your catalog essay that the Lenin were stylistically fluid and unusually good at painting in a range of styles, you know, depending on what a client or a patron wanted, and that they could kind of migrate between particularly French and particularly Flemish and particularly Italian really well. Gentileschi's one example of, of, I mean, there was a great amount of Italian painting in in Paris when they were there. Gentileschi is one example. What, What from their home region or from Flanders would they have known and might have influenced them? I think doubtless they're seeing sort of the Utrecht, Caravaggisti, we sort of to Bruggen, Hondors, these kinds of paintings that have a little different take on Caravaggio's art, especially in terms of much more chiaroscuro, the drama with the nocturnal scenes. And I think those paintings were definitely coming down into Paris. So that's one influence. I mean, Georges Latour, who's not, not from Flanders um, per se, but was out in Nancy and Lorraine. And, but um, absolutely a Caravaggisti. Yeah, exactly. But and his paintings were certainly coming into the French capital right in the latter part of the 1630s. And I think there was even a visit by Georges Latour that's documented 1639, 1640. And uh, there are certain paintings that we have attributed to the Lenan, including one Magdalene that has recently come to light that looks a little different from some of the things they're doing, but we still think that it's completely plausible that for a brief moment they're, they're seeing a Magdalene by George Latour, responding to it, and then going in other directions. But they're looking at Valentin de Boulogne would be someone important, Simon Vouet, the great French painter who returns from Rome. Valentin was in Italy, but his paintings were abundantly seen in Paris. Exactly, exactly. He was closely tracked. He was so famous. Simon Vouet, French painter uh, in Rome for a while, comes back 1629-30. He becomes um, kind of court painter extraordinaire. Um, he would have been a target. But it's, 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 it's interesting to me. I mean, with the Lenin, we only have so few data points and only so few data points that we can assign concrete dates to. Um, so when you try to infiltrate the rest of the paintings over, which is really kind of 18 years that we're dealing with until two of the brothers die, they have to be kind of reversing course, trying out new things at, at all different moments. Are they looking at Flemish genre painting? Absolutely. Flemish genre play, painting plays, uh, I, I think, a, well, it plays an important influence for, for one reason. First, we know that there, there was a very prominent fair that was held once a year in the neighborhood where the Lenan worked. So we have abundant documentation. You know, there was Big luxury good fair. I- exactly. Paintings, silks. Whatever. Exactly. But there were clearly stalls of uh, Flemish merchants coming down, selling their paintings. It was the one time a year they could sell their paintings. Exactly. On the streets. Um, Thirty Years' War comes along, mm-hmm. and it's not so easy for Flemish merchants to come down, but they, they still send their paintings, and they kind of hire Parisians to, to take part in, in showing their wares um, at this particular fair. But um, for me, you know, you look at Adrian Brower, you look at someone like David Teniers the Younger, and you think about when their kind of realist humble folk scenes begin to be painted early 1630s. takes probably a couple of years for um, them to begin to have popularity in Flanders to reach the point where they're then going to market in Paris. So you're getting to get to this 1636, 37, 38. And I think that's precisely the moment the Lenin begin to think about genre painting themselves. And I think it was a necessary development for them to develop a taste in Paris for this kind of sharp realism applied to humble uh, people in, in the case of these Flemish prototypes. It's always sort of taverns, you know, people convorting, um, doing various things. And uh, I think that had to be a necessary development before they thought it wise to begin to enter into that kind of painting themselves. But the problem with these Flemish prototypes is that the basic sensibility of them is completely out of line with what the Lenin ultimately end up doing. Um, if you look at Adrian Brower's or David Teniers, it's, it's, it's about comedy. It's about trying to make people laugh. And uh, it's not the sobriety that the Lenin bring to their images. So they're looking at them. They're seeing that there's 
a market for this kind of painting, but then they're going in a completely different aesthetic direction. You mentioned Neil McGregor's research in the 1970s a moment ago as being a possible answer for for some of where the Linnea may have gotten some of these common, maybe peasant, maybe not, figures that end up in, in, in much of their work. But I get, but also their neighborhood may have been influential in terms of what they painted. So instead of taking things directly out of, say, Flemish, Flemish genre painting, they took maybe the idea and, and what they saw in their neighborhood. What did they see in their neighborhood, and why was their home neighborhood a particularly good place for them to see that? When it comes to the genre paintings, it's, it's, I think it's helpful to divide them into two. You, you, you have ones that are outdoor scenes that are definitely laborers, peasants, agricultural workers, and then you have interior scenes, which don't necessarily have to be peasants at all. These can be urban poor. Poverty was completely endemic to the Paris of the Lenin. The Thirty Years' War was raging on the northern fronts. Peasants were being displaced, coming to Paris. You read contemporary accounts. You know there were beggars all over the streets. I, you know, reading one account about how uh, all these beggars were playing their flutes and just creating a complete cacophony on the, the streets, and they were trying to figure out what to do. It can also be tracked in the response to the beggars, and we have a flourishing of charitable institutions right in the late 1630s, early 1640s. Um, so the Lenan were right there seeing the problems of beggary and poverty playing out on the streets in front of them. And that becomes a very important understanding that they're not necessarily portraying peasants, as has always been thought to be the case. And you'll see that most of the paintings here we kept to the traditional title, peasant interior, peasant male, etc. But point in fact, I really think this is more about urban poor and urban poverty, and that the outdoor scenes are something separate, but I think I can also relate them back to these scenes of the urban poor. And um, it's, it's a question of patronage and, and what these scenes are really about. So let's look at some paintings. Let's start with maybe a particularly good example of a, quote, peasant, and quote, interior. Okay. The Peasant's Meal, as it's traditionally called, um, is a great, great um, one to look at. And to unlock, the, I think, the deeper meaning of this painting, it's helpful first to give a material reading of the painting and look at the details, because once you begin to focus in on things like the canopy bed back in the back right, you see that what we're looking at is not necessarily peasants or uh, a complete poor family, but that there are two socioeconomic classes that are represented. Uh, the bed with its tassels, canopy bed, not the sort of thing you would find in a peasant household, according to inventories. Um, even the window back here um, has a, a kind of lead painting that you would not expect to find in a peasant household. These were normally parchment-covered. Um, Glass was expensive in the yeah, 17th exactly. century. Yeah, um, exactly. Again, even the little dog, the Bichon, that was the uh, sort of lapdog of the aristocracy at that point in time. That was the favorite dog of King Louis XIV. So when you begin to look at this, you, you've got to be alert to the fact that you're not looking strictly at peasants. There are peasants, there are maybe not peasants, poor people displayed in the painting. The two figures left and right of the central man based on their dress, especially the one on the right in his very ragged clothes and bare feet, that person does seem to represent the poor. But the man at center is a different story. He is dressed quite humbly, but you have a nice white chemise collar coming out, and his beard is quaffed in the style of Louis XIII, the, the style favored at court. He, he must be a member of the aristocracy. I've done a lot of reading about one particular individual named Gaston de Renty, who was head of the all-powerful Compagnie de Saint-Sacrement, and this was one of the counter-reformation secret societies that developed in Paris during the late 1630s, and it was both about championing uh, the virtues of the communion, the Holy Eucharist, Saint-Sacrement, but also it was a charitable organization, fundamentally. And Gaston de Renty took leadership of the organization in 1640, which is precisely the moment we think all these paintings began to be executed. We have none with dates on them before mm. 1641. He took charge of the Compagnie de Saint-Sacrement and thousands of letters he wrote that allows us to understand his spirituality. And he also had a biographer, his um, confessor, who wrote a biography of the man. And you learn fascinating details, like the fact beginning in 1641, he started making it a habit of inviting a couple of poor people to his house every Monday evening and uh, holding a meal for them. And during the course of the meal, he would teach them about elements of the Eucharist and basics uh, tenets of Catholicism. So when you turn back to a painting such as this and you see that there's really no real meal in progress, the only food elements are wine and bread, direct allusion to the Eucharist, beautiful white tablecloth, altar cloth, that there's something much deeper 
happening here, that there's a, a spiritual charge to the painting. And I think it can be related, as other scholars have related it, to the Supper at Emmaus and the story of uh, how you have two travelers walking along the path to Emmaus. They're joined by a third traveler. All three go into a tavern. The two original travelers treat the third man to a meal, part of charity. And at the moment that this figure breaks the bread, um, they realize that they're in the presence of Christ. Um, and they sort of have this flash of insight of, of who they've been with. And if you read Gaston de Rinti's, um letters, he believed that by um, having substantive engagement with the poor, you're able to glimpse Christ, that poor people were just like anyone else and that they were products of God and therefore able to bear witness to God's presence, Christ's presence. And I think that's what's happening here. Just at that moment that he's giving charity, teaching about the Eucharist, he's having this flash of insight, the light radiating from his face that through the charity he's offering to these beggars, he, he's seeing Christ. And it's quite clearly that, that there were many, many aristocrats who were doing what Gaston de Renty were doing in terms of going around Paris and trying to do charity. And this painting in particular is a very large one. It, was, it had to have been commissioned. It could not have been something that was being sold at the Foire Saint-Germain on speculation. Um, so I think that members of institutions like the Compagnie de Saint-Sacrement might have come to the Lenin to try to create emblems, emblematic images that they could put on their walls as reminders to the kind of good work that they were doing. These are not portraits of individual people. These beggars, they repeat in other paintings. The man at center repeats in other paintings by the Lenin. It must be a buddy who's come in and modeled for them. Um, so we're not looking at direct portraits of Gaston de Renty, but rather images that are representational of the work that they're doing. We'll have an image of the peasant's meal on manpodcast.com. Let's look at, at, at an outdoor peasant painting. Okay. So it's interesting when we think about these individuals, these aristocratics who were um, promoting charity in France. They all had estates. Gaston de Renty had three estates spread out. And you read about his letters, and he had this real bond to the workers and the peasants who were keeping himself really financially afloat. He enjoyed going out there and tilling the earth with them, he writes. He respected the work they did, how they were bound to God's earth. So I think that when you move to an outdoor scene, such as the painting from San Francisco, of the um, beggars in front of a house. You know, there's some sort of um, deeply sympathetic treatment of those figures that I, I'm not sure is supposed to be read in, in strictly realistic terms, but again, maybe this is a reminder of these people who all had country estates trying to bring paintings and imagery of that kind of respect that they had for the people who worked their farm into their, their living rooms and having these really beautiful, charming, deeply sympathetic images that reminds them of what's going on back at the, the family estate. And we can turn to the beautiful painting from the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Again, there are details within this particular painting that speak to the reality of the way that the peasant economy worked at that point in time. The horse was something that was really quite, really quite expensive for a, a real, true peasant to own. A horse uh, at the far right of the painting, right behind a man sitting uh, wearing pretty tattered clothes. Yeah, he's wearing tattered clothes, but the, the gaiters here, that's another element of potential wealth. Yeah, the children aren't looking in such great shape <laughs> in terms of their clothing. But the woman at left, she's sort of smiling. She doesn't seem to be too down on life. She seems to accept her place in the world. And she has that big brass container on her head, perhaps filled with milk. So Neil McGregor in the article we've referred to in 1979, I mean, it's fascinating because it's clear that there, there, there were peasants who were being hired by middle-class landowners to come live on the properties and to maintain and to kind of be the um, foremen of the, of, of the farm. And they were able to live a comfortable existence. So, and, and, know, and indeed, the Lenan's father... In did, addition to being a tax collector. Yeah, he did exactly this sort of thing with his little farm of La Jumelle. He hired someone, he leased it out to uh, a couple who were farmers to, to help run the property when he wasn't able to be there himself. So this was happening all over France. All the aristocrats in Paris would have been very familiar with this economic situation. Um, the Lenin um, knew it, but did they have to know it themselves from their experiences when they were children, or could they have picked it up from just having visits to um, the surrounding areas of uh, Paris with their aristocratic patrons to kind of understand and to glimpse the kind of thing you see in the, the painting from London. We've talked a little bit about these, these so-called peasant paintings. We, we mentioned how the Linnea 
looked at work by, say, Orazio Genileschi earlier. What types of religious painting are they doing, and how is it, I don't know, distinctive? How do they make it theirs? Within the exhibition, we have two great altarpieces from Notre Dame that, like I said, are imbued with a kind of naturalism that is is special to them. We have a number of smaller devotional paintings that, again, kind of run the gamut of stylistic influences. Um, So clearly there were kind of two markets where you would, you know, create kind of imagery that would have gone to um, the galleries and hung in galleries in private residences within Paris, but then you have the great altarpieces. We just don't have documents for any more. We know that they executed three great altarpieces for Notre Dame Cathedral, and we know about an early cycle that they did for the convent of the Petit Augustin in Paris. And, you know, beyond that, we, we don't really have documentation for other altarpieces that they executed. Uh, although we do have a payment contract for a cycle of paintings that Mathieu Lenin executed during the mid-1630s for the Chapel of the Virgin and Saint-Germain-de-Prés. So what's, I mean, still special uh, about the Lenin as religious painters, again, I would say the variety of stylistic influences that is going on, um, but sometimes they just sort of knock it out of the park, like the Adoration of the Shepherds from the National Gallery in London, which is kind of a beautiful, light, airy, um, um, wonderful interpretation of, of that particular story. Two other types of paintings they did to touch on quickly before going on to other things. They did mythological scenes. Do you have a favorite? The Bacchus and Ariadne in the exhibition is, is glorious. Um, it shows Bacchus stepping out of this big ship being propelled by oarsmen um, onto the island of Naxos where he's going to seize his new beauty, the uh, ravishing Ariadne who's sleeping, beautiful crinkly cloth um, coming down around her. One interesting point about this painting is that the composition of the oarsmen in the background is taken from a fresco that existed at Fontainebleau and it would have been typical of artists to go to Fontainebleau and draw these frescoes but also that particular fresco was issued as a print right about um, early 1630s. So I think that may have galvanized the, the reuse of that particular compositional motif in that painting. Portraiture and the Lenin is kind of an odd story. Why? Well, we have that one document that they were clearly involved with doing the great prestigious commission of the Achevin of Paris. But in terms of surviving portraits, we only have one that is traditional in being of a post-individual. And in the exhibition, first time it's ever been seen in the context of the Lenin, it's been buried away deep in a private collection. And it's of the Comte de Treville, who was the king's personal bodyguard. He was the person who was the head of the royal musketeers. Painting assigned Lenin, 1644. But I can guarantee you, if that signature wasn't there, this painting would be passed over as a mm. work by the Lenin because it's very traditional and very you know, the kind of thing. There must be hundreds of paintings like this on walls in both America and Europe mm. that um, are unsigned, and many of them could be by the Lenin. We also know about their activities as a portraitist from underneath many of their paintings. You can see x-rays that reveal portraits underneath. And this, I mean, it's who knows why these paintings were never delivered to their clients. And just or, to clarify, we're not talking about portraits under other portraits. We're no. talking about portraits under other things. Yeah, portraits under genre paintings in particular. Yeah. So what's going on there? The client reject the portrait, and then they use it for a, a religious painting. Another great mystery. And then there are a couple of interesting instances of them painting who we believe um, to be themselves self-portraits. And there's painting two paintings in the exhibition, one from the Alla Butte and the other from the National Gallery in London that are complete conundrums in trying to sort out exactly who's being represented. Although you look at them and you, you, you think they have to be self-portraits of the brothers. Art historians often use portraiture to help build the web of connections around an artist, or in this case, artists. <laughs> there is a document, I think, listing a 100 or so portraits they painted to which paintings have not or cannot be assigned or have been lost. Yep. Why is that document possibly important in the context of our inability to assign auth- individual authorship of, of, of any of the paintings and Matthew's 29-year continuance after his two brothers die? When Matthew dies, he, he does leave behind an estate inventory that records a couple hundred paintings, many of which do seem to be portraits. Again, why would he be holding portraits? Because you, you don't go around and just like make portraits of your, <laughs> your friends and then keep them for yourselves necessarily, <laughs> unless, you know, until the 19th century. So it isn't quite clear what's going on there. But, you know, again, 
seeing this Comte de Treville painting, perhaps that will lead to some identifications mm. down the road. I mean, there are some idiosyncrasies to the style that we've picked up on that may enable some unsigned portraits to be brought into the fold. So that list, are those paintings that presumably were painted by Mathieu in those 29 years, or do we think they go all the way back? Or do we just I mean, no I, I think it's probably a mixture of stock by the other two brothers, but primarily, I mean, it's 30 years. I, I think it has to be Mathieu's own production. So you and your co-curator, Esther Bell, took a stab at establishing kind of a, a tripartite division of the oeuvre. How did you go about doing this? And how is that a mix of connoisseurship and technical analysis? First, it took thousands of photographs. Claire Barry, who's the head of conservation at the Kimball, along with Elise F. Clifford, who's the head of paintings conservation in San Francisco, along with Esterville, we traveled all over Europe you know, for a couple of years trying to photograph inch by inch every one of these paintings, which involved you know, climbing on altarpieces all over the place. Sometimes we didn't have the access we wanted. Sometimes we were left for a day with a microscope where we could really nail down and, and look at these very, very closely. Um, we tried to x-ray as many as we, we could, but, but still it was just visual analysis and, and looking at details, looking at facial types. I wish I could say that there was some sort of technical smoking gun that, you know, every time the artist used lapis lazuli in a particular kind of calligraphic way that that identified him uh, as being one of the brothers, but that that didn't actually turn up for us necessarily. <laughs> so, Darn. The, you know, the first thing, we did was simply say, okay, there must be three hands at work here. Let's try to divide into three groups. And we did that to the best of our ability. There were certain paintings that did not fit neatly with one of the groups that we created. But maybe these are instances of collaboration or maybe paintings that one brother started, another one finished at a later date. So we kind of left them in the center. And then the next task is trying to figure out names for each one of each, the each resulting of three, yeah. groups. The problem with that is that all of the contemporary evidence that says anything about the specific identities of any of the brothers boils down to a, you know, maybe 100 words, and it's a little bit contradictory. One source says Louis was the miniaturist. Another source says Antoine was the miniaturist. They are in agreement that Mathieu was the painter of large, sophisticated compositions. And so we went back to um, what we call our attribution map, and it's a diagram where we portrayed all of the paintings at relative size and clustered them together where putting paintings side by side that really are close in terms of stylistic affinities. There clearly was one group that was larger in scale and seemed to represent altarpieces and history paintings. And so we feel a little bit more confident thinking that's Mathieu. But when it comes to Louis and Antoine, there's still very large question marks after their names. Louis has always been the favorite of art historians as being the mysterious genius who must have produced you know, the great peasant paintings. But that's because there isn't one shred of documentation for him anywhere. So how does your grouping and mapping compare to what art historians have tried to divvy up before you? In, in many ways, it's, it's quite quite similar. So I don't think, you know, there are a couple of paintings here and there that we changed between groups. I think one example is the uh, painting here from the National Gallery of Art in Washington of, I think it's called Peasant Interior. I should check on that. Um, <laughs> Anyway, it's a scene of peasants, and this is an instance where most art historians had put it in the so-called Louis group. Pierre Rosenberg, the great um, doyen of Lenin studies, who wrote the catalogue Raisonné in 1993. And an introduction for this catalogue. And an introduction for this catalogue, very much a champion of this project. He put it with, he put it with Mathieu. And we looked, and, and you know, point in fact, we, we think it is by Mathieu. So that sort of runs in the face of uh, earlier art historians, helps to support Pierre's argument. We're talking after the show's open. The show's on the walls. You've installed it. First time you've got, I mean, as you mentioned, you've traveled around seeing all these paintings. Now you're seeing them in a walkable space, and you can visually walk from one one to another to test what you came up with. How's it stick? How's it doesn't stick? I was very scared that first time (laughs) I walked in. Um, Yeah, I bet. Yeah, you know, there's, there's certain paintings that we were testing that, you know, uh, Pierre Rosenberg had thought could be by the Lenin. We were borrowing another certain Lenin, for instance, from Boston, so why not throw in that questionable one just to see how it looks on the wall? In the case of that particular painting, a crucifixion, um, I think the consensus is out that we're not looking at the Lenin. It must be by a close follower. But, but these are things we had couched our language in the catalog, um, I think, in an appropriate way to signal our, our, our doubts. But 
When it came to the sorting of hands, I think Esther and I remained very, very confident of the way that we have parsed the hands. Everything began to look l like it could add up. There's one sort of interesting case of a painting called The Denial of St. Peter from the Louvre, for which there's a document that says it was either, it was a gift to Mazarin, the great cardinal, by the Academy of Fine Arts in Paris. The document is from 16, I think, 56, and it, it says that the painting that is being gifted to Cardinal Mazarin is either is by the deceased Lenan, Monsieur Lenan, um, which means it's either by Antoine or Louis, um, not Mathieu. Most people, when they look at it, they think it's Mathieu, but we began to play with the idea that, in fact, it could be by Antoine, and we were able to create a little group of paintings. Um, normally, mm. he's considered to be the miniaturist, but in this particular case, there seems to be a group of paintings that can be associated with the denial of St. Peter's that even comes back and allows us to bring the great portrait of the Comte de Treville into his group. And I was very, very nervous about this kind of grouping and, and associating that painting with Antoine, who was always celebrated as being the miniaturist. But... Actually, I feel much more confident about that now. So there's still many study days to come and, and many scholars who will see the exhibition. So it'll be interesting still to see how that shakes out. Will anything in the installation in San Francisco change from the installation in Fort Worth based on this kind of thinking? At this point, no. I think Esther was very satisfied. We had thematically groups, so you walk in and you have the great altarpieces, and then you go to a section with the interiors and the card players, back to religious paintings. There's a section of outdoor, um, and then kind of ends with allegories. So I, I think that's a smart way to do it rather than try to create a chronology, because you can't really create a chronology um, with all these paintings. We talked earlier about painters and, and painters in countries that had an influence on the Lenin. What impact do you see them having on their contemporaries and then what later French painters looked at their stuff and, and found things in it? It's quite interesting. I mean, there's no real reception to the Lenin straight away. There, I mean, there are followers who are doing genre subjects um, in the 1650s and 1660s and there's sort of kind of a vague group of kind of Lenin-ish things that begin to spawn off but they're not infused with that kind of sobriety and the kind of depths of uh, emotionalism that make the Lenin's works um, so profound. Um, and I think a lot of that just has to do with the fact that the early 1640s was kind of a, um, a, the, the one moment that these paintings could happen when you had the Counter-Reformation, mm -hmm. Thirty Years' War. Then Jansenism comes to the fore. The whole issue of charity in Paris begins to change. There aren't figures like Gaston de Renty anymore. And um, I think the moment sort of passes uh, for the kind of paintings that the Lenin are producing. And as a result of that, they really become quite obscure right after that for another probably 100 years. They are celebrated during the 18th century um, in, in Britain. You begin to see them enter into British collections, but I think that's largely because they were being assumed kind of to be Dutch-Flemish, and there was a taste for Dutch-Flemish painting at that point in time. There's some prints that are issued, but it's really in the 19th century that they are officially rediscovered. And one of the great people to rediscover them was a man named Jean Fleury. He was a critic. And as it happens, he was from Laon. And so there's this sort of um, personal motive on his, his part to want to champion other geniuses from Laon because that means he came from a great incubator of artistic genius himself. And so he begins to really discuss and talk about how the profundity of the Lenin's works is emblematic of the great French spirit and that they really are the true artists, the realist artists, the, the, the great imaginers of the French people. And then as we get into painters in the 19th century, is, is Courbet looking at the Linnea? Yeah, absolutely. Manet, Picasso even? Yeah, they're all beginning to, to look at it. I mean, some of these paintings are really celebrated. The Forge, you know, the king was after trying to buy it. So, so there was a celebrity that began to be attached to the Linnea, they could go to the Louvre um, and look at the paintings very closely. Um, but it's quite clear Courbet, with his realism, is, is looking at it. And it carries all the way through the um, 19th century when you um, even come to Cezanne. There was a famous Lenin in Aix-en-Provence at the Musée Garnet of card players, and there are definite sympathies with card players by Cezanne. Um, he saw that painting. He talks about that painting. Picasso owned a Lenin. He, he does some riffs on the Lenin himself in his art. So it's, yeah, it's, it, it's absolutely fascinating how they are picked up by critics as well as artists themselves. C.D. Dickerson, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Tyler. It's a pleasure.
The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Martin Wong, Human Instamatic, on view May 14th through August 7th. This widely acclaimed show, called A Complete View of One of Our Great Urban Visionaries by The New York Times, features more than 80 paintings from every stage of Wong's extraordinary career, in all their formal inventive, gritty, and lyrical power. Originally presented at the Bronx Museum, the Wexner Center is the dazzling exhibition's first stop on a national tour. For more information on Human Instamatic, including additional events related to the exhibition, go to wexarts.org. The Inner Circle Galleries at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. stretch more than 400 linear feet. For her largest work, Lynn Myers has made a monumental site-specific wall drawing that encircles the museum's second level. When Myers works nesting one line beside another, she welcomes and magnifies the imperfections that arise naturally from her process. Tiny ripples become waves that pulse with energy. Get more information at hershorn.si.edu and get caught in the current. The National Museum of Art at Duke University presents Southern Accent, Seeking the American South in Contemporary Art, an exhibition that questions and explores the complex and contested space of the American South. This unprecedented exhibition takes on Southern identity as an open-ended question and reframes the way we look at the South in contemporary art. Southern accent encompasses a broad spectrum of media and approaches from both within and outside the region, demonstrating that Southernness is more of a shared sensibility than a consistent culture. Southern accent includes work by 60 artists focusing on contemporary work from the past 30 years. It includes earlier work dating back to the 1950s as important foundational and historical markers. Opening September 1st at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. Next up, a clip from my 2015 conversation with British-Nigerian artist Zina Sarawiwa. When we taped this, a tight survey of Sarawiwa's recent work was on view at Houston's Blaffer Art Museum. That show travels to the Cranard at the University of Illinois this fall. Now, Sarawiwa is included in an exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum titled Disguise, Masks, and Global African Art. It's up through September 18th. At the point we join our conversation, we were just turning toward masks, and later on we'll also discuss a recent Sarawiwa video installation. You make use of masks and masking societies, as they're called, in, in several works. What is a masking society, and why did or does that and they interest you? I mean, this masquerade is ever-present part of, you know, African life all over the continent. And, I mean, I barely understand it myself. You know, I'm still, you know, learning about it, what it means. And, you know, I learned... It's a good point to, good place to point out that, that you, you grew up in England and returned to Africa, I think, when you were 19? Yeah, we used to go back every summer holiday up until we were about 14 and then didn't go back for another 10 years after that. And then I think... For me, it was about five years later, I made some film documentaries in Lagos. And then I didn't come back to the Niger Delta properly and live there until two years ago. So, yeah, it's, um, I spent most of my life in the UK. But, you know, I got to know my village as well, not just the city, because, you know, we're from Port Harcourt, which is the city. But we also were made to go to our village and, you know, live a village lifestyle, which we hated when we were children. But for me, it's the place where most of my artwork takes place now. I love I love it there. I just think the African village is this totally misunderstood place and space. It is so modern in so many ways that people don't understand. And cosmopolitan rather is what I'm looking for. Yet at the same time, very much of the earth and primordial, but you know, pre-industrial. But it also, you know, I mean, you'll have, so I, when I first went to these around the new year, you have a lot of masquerade being played, as we say it, um, you play a masquerade. And they're played around all the villages. There's, there are 111 villages in Agoni land where I'm from. And so, you know, you'll go to, I, I just happen to be at my own village. And, you know, and you have people there with their smartphones. They're just cheap little smartphones or, you know, kind of iPad-y sorts of thing, tablets. And they're, they're filming it. They're filming all these masquerades. So you've got this amazing mixture of, of, you know, the modern world and tradition sort of mixed together. And it's just a normal thing. And this is the village. And, you know, a lot of people live in uh, adobe buildings. Some live in, in buildings that are made of cement, but not necessarily. So it's just this really amazing place. And Agoniland also, when you... 
enter it. It's just, it, for me, it's a little bit like Middle Earth. It's just such a strange place. It has an incredible atmosphere. And you just see so many incredible, incredible things. And, you know, there's no way you can't make art when you're there, you know? So for me, it's, you know, people go into many African villages and it's always about solving a particular problem. And that's what you get when you go in there. That's what you're looking for. That's what those are the imagery, those are the ideas that you're going to extract. I went, there, went in there looking for, for creativity, for art, for masquerade, for masks, because it's still the masquerade is still so mysterious. And, you know, I don't really understand what it's about. I, so I went around looking for mask makers because I just, you know, it was one of the few forms of creativity that you're still seeing taking place, even though it's also dying out. And then I discovered a whole new form of mask masquerade making, which seemed very humorous and political at the same time and also contained like images of my father on a lot of these masks and then you know images of like deities like mammy water which is a kind of a deity that comes from many different places but it's often a woman with long hair with a snake around her neck seen like osama bin laden on some of these great things i mean it, like any kind of almost carnival culture they're referencing goodies and baddies and all sorts of different elements and forces in life and to see that on a masquerade mask for me was just really tremendously exciting and it was colorful and it wasn't this it was a completely different Ogoni land that I was used to hearing about and understanding the Ogoni land I was used to just personally was an extremely boring place and also if you look at it from a journalistic point of view it's just like terrifying place where all these terrible things happen it's pollution and you know there's militancy and so there are all these things that you worried about you're either bored or you're terrified and so you know actually masquerade opened up the creative side of agony land and the night delta and allowed me to enter ideas cosmologies and you know other elements the aesthetic the sexual all these things that i was able to access through masquerade so that's of course is why it interests me and it's seductive it's mysterious it's full of amazing music and dance and and art so no wonder i was attracted You've engaged with masks in a number of pieces in the last few years, including Men of the Ogele from last year, which is a photographic series, and in The Invisible Man from this year, which is both a photographic series and the mask that you made. It seems a kind of brave leap to make your own mask. So why did you choose to do that? So it's a masquerade. When you're confronted with it, you know, you'll go to the Met. Brooklyn Museum or, you know, the Fowler, wherever you go, even though there's a lot of attempts to try and bridge the gap between yourself as a viewer and these masks, these inert masks that, you know, have been taken from a particular land and placed in a, in a glass case, there is a sense that there's not enough of a, I still feel this distance between myself and the mask and I feel this distance as an African as well. You know, I don't, I don't know anymore. And even when the explanation is there, or even when there are videos of people, you know, the, the mask in action in inverted commas, the communication still isn't there. And I realized that what was missing was the emotional connection. So it's not these factual, it's not, it's not, it's not about the facts. It's not about saying this mask is performed at this time, made by this person, this place, and this is when it's performed, this is what they do, and let, let us show you it. The mask being danced by a human being still doesn't help. Doesn't help me. For me, it doesn't, I don't have any relationship with it. It still feels very distant. And I just wanted to enter into my problems with masquerade sometimes. So, for example, the, you know, there's one masquerade in my village where the you know guy would like runs around with a machete, and <laughs> and it's you know it's really terrifying. That's also part of masquerade. But I also wanted to conf confront that. I'm like, why is it scary? Why does it have to be about terror? Why is that a part of our culture? But then also I learned a lot from it because the person that was with, that was with me said that no, you have to just hold your ground, hold your camera, hold your ground. And then they won't touch you. If you run away, that's when they might, something might happen. But if you stand your ground. So you know, it's, there's so many things you learn once you just sort of get involved and, you know, allow yourself to get enter into emotionally, but also to question and not be afraid of questioning things and saying what you don't like and what you do like or what scares you. I just, I'm not someone who believes in, oh, just because it's like this ancient ritual, I have to respect it. No, I want to understand more. And I also respect what I respect in my emotions. What I respect is how I feel about it. And that's what I want to investigate. And so the idea of having an emotional relationship to me was much more important in establishing that. And so that's where the invisible man came from. I thought, OK, this idea of like masking, you know, I'd read somewhere about how, you know, we dance our demons or people, you know, this idea of wearing the things you're scared of. And like this idea of fear, our relationship with fear was so interesting. I thought, OK, the thing I fear the most is like, you know, all that upsets me the most is people dying in my family. That was, you know, pretty 
awful and scary, my brother and my father. And then this idea of disappearing men generally. So I felt like, okay, I want to make a mask that deals with that. And I wonder what would happen once I start to wear it or invite other women to wear it. And that's the other thing. It's a women's mask. Mostly masquerade is performed by men. And it's a, it's a male endeavor. And I thought, well, that's rubbish. We've got to have some women involved in this. This is a women's mask and a women's masquerade. I started my own masquerade group. So I thought, okay, if I have this mask, if I make it, and if I, what, you know, what will happen? You know, people use this as a strategy. Why can't I? But for issues that I care about personally. So, yeah, so that's where the invisible man came from. So they're my personal issues. But I also think that that's something that I think lots of people can relate to, male and female. So, yeah, that's why I made the mask. So I could you know, enter into the culture and begin to understand it. It's not the end of my research. It's the very beginning of it to understand the process, to understand. There's just the beautiful thing about art is that there's so many layers and levels of, of, of research and understanding that take place whilst you're making that. So I commissioned the piece. I designed it, but I commissioned it from a local carver. You know, trying to find a carver taught me so much about Agoniland. I traveled all over the place with my driver to find these, these carvers. And so you learn a lot about the lay of the land. And that's also informed my Carapo piece, for example, just going around trying to find these guys. And then when you're there, you know, working with them about, okay, so what is this, you know, you, you draw something and then they complete, they do something completely different. You learn about their aesthetic choices and why they're that way. And then you just learn so much just by creating this particular piece. And, you know, I've only just begun. This, the Invisible Man is sort of teaching me what it is about, you know, it's teaching me about my own emotion. It's teaching me about Agoniland. It's teaching me about art more generally. It's on its way to Houston as we speak. I think it arrives in a couple of days, well, tomorrow actually. And, you know, what does the Invisible Man mean when, when, when he's here, you know? And also masking. Another thing that people don't, what I, I've understood by playing with masquerade is how a, the mask affects the wearer and it changes the wearer in the same way as the wigs changed Phyllis. So in my Alt Nollywood film, you know, um, one of the masks, the, my Carapo dancers, he's what, he has the highest horns on his mask. And when we were finished with the whole performance and the whole filming, he had to part with the mask and he kissed it. And he said, my queen, he didn't want to, <laughs> he didn't want to let go of it. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting that, you know, he, he referred to the mask in the feminine but, and it was his queen. And, you know, the masks affect you in some particular way. And this Invisible Man mask is also it's the beginning of my journey to understand what masquerade is, what masking is, and who I am. Prayer Warriors is a new piece that I think debuts at the Blaffer. It's about these people whose, I don't know, job, if you will, is to to pray for other people and features uh, through four, four of them. And I guess you could almost say their performances, both visually and audioly, audi auditorily. Orally. <laughs> Orally. Thank you. I don't, it's, you know, what do I know about the language? And I'm glad you brought it up because, you know, starting with, with Phyllis and the deliverance of comfort, which I think we'll also be able to have up on manpodcast.com and continuing through to this new work, Prayer Warriors, Christianity pops up in your work over and over and over again. Is it there as a stand-in that the view that you want the viewer to recognize as a, a colonial legacy, or do you more want the viewer to approach it as something that has been reclaimed and adapted by by the people and places in the works? Listen, I don't have an overarching kind of political agenda when it comes to this. In fact, I sort of realize that certain themes keep popping up in my work because you've told me so. People from the outside, I literally think about the thing I want to make and then I make it. I actually try not to do this thing where I start to think, where does this fit into my, gra you know, my greater oeuvre? I don't do that. I just like to make the work on its own and see what happens. And then, you know, then often other people say, well, do you realise that this is very similar to this is very similar to that? So, you know, I'm, I haven't got an agenda actually at all. And, you, you know, if you watched The Deliverance of Comfort, there's a scene where I have these young boys dressed up as these kind of evil pastors that are trying to exorcise a young child in white shifts in white shifts and with a big like catholic rosaries around the necks and chris yeah gold crucifixes and there's you know i filmed them from below and they're staring down at the camera and they're praying and they're praying and and i actually really love that scene and i sort of i didn't realize it but on some level like the, the prayer warriors that i ended up doing 
I've ended up making for this blacker show, uh, it sort of comes from that in a way, except for I was really criticizing those particular pastors. That was a definite critique because obviously this idea of child witches and the way that children are treated who are considered child witches is something that obviously I feel very strongly about. So people that do this to me are, are deluded and evil. And so, yeah, I had a particular idea that I wanted to express there. But then with Prayer Warriors, it wasn't that at all. I'm not you know, I'm not interested in the idea of the kind of like the there's a side to the way Christianity is practiced in parts of Africa where you can think that, yes, there's a lot of exploitation that takes place and there's a lot wrong with it. But I'm not engaging with it on that level because there's also there are many other sides to the way that Christianity is practiced. And I don't think it's just about, oh, these outsiders have given us this religion and it's about controlling us from the outside. It's not that simple. I think that people have, we have made it our own. And that's really in Prayer Warriors. There are only two words, and I think it happens twice in the piece, that you know your average visitor to a show or to seeing the piece in, in Houston or Illinois or wherever will, will pick up, and those two words are Jesus Christ. Mm, absolutely. And they jump out like, you know, in, in the midst of a lot of words that, you know, an American or English speaking audience isn't going to know what they mean. The words Jesus Christ fly off the screen, fly out of the speakers. All the time. But then at the same time, you're looking at their performance, their physical performances. And I presented it as a performance. And because that's what it is to me. And the way that they're there's one particular chap who looks like, I don't know, a member of Jodeci or some sort of new Jack Swing band. He's got glasses on and he's got this. And, you know, the way he's performing, he's it's almost he's almost like a rapper, but he's not. He's not rapping. He's he's praying. And his performance is, is glorious to watch. It's fantastic. And, and it is a performance and it's of him and it's of the earth. And it's not just this this performance of Christianity that's accepted from another country. It's just something that's completely agony. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.